This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I was joined by Luke Enrique Gomez. Luke is The Guardian Australia's social affairs and inequality editor, and he joined me to delve into the most urgent issues of inequality in Australia, in particular the latest developments in the social security system, including the rate changes to JobSeeker, changes to Parents Next, and other related issues. We also talk about the hidden cohort of people on JobSeeker, those who are chronically ill or disabled, who can't at the moment access the disability support pension. Then I was joined by Alison Puglio. Alison is an ecologist, a natural historian, an environmental photographer, and an author. And she joined me to talk about her fascinating new book, Underground Lovers. Encounters with Fungi. We traverse a wide range of topics relating to the fungi kingdom, including conservation, indigenous knowledge, the various types of fungi, as well as the role that women have played in mycology and the study of fungi. We talk about this and much, much more. Then, finally, I was joined by Professor David Lindenmeyer. David is a world-renowned forest scientist and ecologist based at the ANU Fenner School. He joined me to talk about the breaking news that had just been reported. That news which has been confirmed is that the Andrews Labor State Government will end native forest logging and native timber production in Victoria by January 2024. This is six years ahead of the government's stated plan, which was by the end of 2030. David talks about the long history of this issue, the economics of it, and the science that supports ending native forest logging. He explains what the decision means for native forests and their regeneration, as well as the plantation forestry industry and forestry workers. This has been heralded as a momentous occasion for so many who have campaigned across the community. It's an issue that this program has been covering from its very inception in January 2017. I'm joined right now by Luke Enrique Gomez, who is the Social Affairs and Inequality Editor for The Guardian Australia. He's been a regular on this show talking all things social affairs and inequality, and he's done some phenomenal reporting, of which he's been awarded appropriately for as well. And today we're going to be talking about a range of topics that Luke has been reporting on. And first of all, we will relate it back to the budget and the changes to things like JobSeeker in terms of the payments. They also do reflect changes to other payments as well. And there are changes to Parents Next, which was a very controversial program that we discussed in the past. We also might reference the NDIS and just the growing size of that program and how it was framed in the budget. We'll also talk about some of Luke's reporting, which has been really fascinating. And he's just put out a new piece today, actually. So we will also talk about this titled Australian Job Seekers Told to Use Chat GPT to Apply for Jobs and Shown Irrelevant Videos. It really does sound right on cue for these taxpayer-funded training courses. So I can't wait to talk about that and a whole range of other issues. So I welcome onto the show Luke Enrique Gomez. Hi there, Luke, and thank you very much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me as always, Amy. How are you? 
I'm pretty good, thanks. And I was very much enjoying that last song I was playing on air. <laughs> I was wondering, I just like, who was in that band? There's Elsie Lange, who I played on this show, but there's also another guy there, someone called Luke. Yeah, I think you're really, uh, <laughs> really getting your money's worth out of this one. Uh, I yeah, really so am. It's, uh, it's a duo. Uh, it's Elsie, which is my partner, and, and me. I'm on guitar there as well. So that's our first our first uh, single. Um, we yep. actually played last night um, as well. Um, that was our first band show um, supporting uh, the wonderful Chitra at um, the Northgate Social Club. So that was mm. very fun. And how did it go? How, how are you feeling the reception to the single? Uh, I think people liked it. It's, uh, we're pretty happy with it. Um, you never, you know, it's the first one. Uh, Elsie's got a lot of experience uh, putting out music. Uh, she's a very accomplished mm. uh, musician. A bit new for me, but um, it's been really fun and um, we've been doing some more recording, so um, we'll be putting some more music out um, soon, which is, I think, yeah, that's the part I really enjoy actually is is the recording um, part of it and having this finished product. Um, playing on stage was much more nerve-wracking, uh, <laughs> but, but fun too. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm very excited to hear there's more in the pipeline. I was, that was my next question, so I'm glad to know that. That's exciting. Now let's get into your other life, which is the job that you've had for quite a while as social affairs and inequality editor and before that reporter. Mm. And you've really delved deeply into so many different areas across your time. And we've talked about things like the NDIS. We've talked about Parents Next, Job Seeker, the Disability Support Pension, the Disability Royal Commission, so many topics. We're going to cover most of those today to some degree. But let's first of all talk about the federal budget, because Mm. obviously lots of big decisions were made in relation to the portfolios that you're reporting on. There was a lot of pre-budget discussion as well about what should happen. And, of course, the interesting committee that David Pocock essentially negotiated to ensure that the job seeker rate would be reviewed and that there would be an expert panel that was transparent and shared their advice, not only to government, but to the rest of the public so that we knew what the, um, I guess the experts thought would be the appropriate amount of money that someone looking for work and needing some social security, what kind of rate that they should be on based on the economic circumstances we're in. So could you take us through what some of the not necessarily demands were, but what some of the discussions were in the sector around the budget and what was being asked for and also, I guess, what the government had initially flagged or maybe, as I heard last week, accidentally had leaked, which was only a rise to the rate for over 55s. Um, yeah, so as you said, um, the government established that um, committee or um, sort of advisory body um, after negotiations with uh, the crossbench Senator David Pocock. And so they had this body which was going to report um, just before the budget um, and basically make a determination about the adequacy of um, welfare payments and primarily the job seeker payment. And you had people on that committee um, from ACOS, from the Business Council, from um, the ACTU, and then a, a range of experts um, 
in uh, sort of economic experts um, or economists, social um, security experts, labour market um, experts. So it was a really well-credentialed um, committee. And what they came back with uh, just before the budget was um, a primary recommendation that the job seeker payment should be increased to about 90% of the age pension from 70%, which is what it was um, before the budget. Um, one of the, they sort of, they made uh, several recommendations, I think about 20 overall, but they, they prefaced all of that by saying, look, um, we know you can't do all of this. And the, the one thing that you must do, the thing that should be a priority is a substantial increase to the job seeker payment um, for various reasons, you know, because it's leaving people um, living in poverty um, and also that it's, a, it's actually a barrier to helping people get into work. Lots of the arguments that we've been hearing for, for quite some time. Um, in the end, um, well, I should say um, the sector, so groups like ACOS were very much behind that um, proposal and were quite... I think frustrated when, as you uh, mentioned, there was a kind of budget leak. I'm not sure if it was a budget leak or sort of a bit of a flying of a kite or mm, whatever. I wondered that. Yeah, which was that it was initially suggested um, or reported that the, the only change to the job seeker payment would be to um, give a small uh, uplift for people aged uh, 55. Um, to 59. So at the moment, if you're over 60 and or 60 and over and have been on JobSeeker for more than nine months, you get a uh, an increased um, rate. Um, and so the idea was that they would just change that age eligibility down to 55. And the argument being, um, I guess, this um, discussion that we've had over some time, um, that group of people, um, you know, have been... Um, uh, really susceptible to homelessness um, and um, and poverty, and I guess um, there's been a lot of discussion, particularly about older women um, with who you know have less superannuation and things like that, who have been falling into poverty. So I think that was the thinking um, that proposal or that budget leak uh, really did generate a lot of anger um, from the welfare um, sector from economists too, um, who basically said this is, you know, not really the approach that's required and across the board approach is, is what's needed to lift all people out of poverty. Um, and so, yeah, there was quite a lot of anger about that idea. And then as we saw in the budget, uh, they did end up doing, um, making that change um, for 55 um, and over, but they also included a... Um, an across-the-board increase to the job seeker payment of about of $40 a fortnight. Um, I guess to put that into context, when the coalition government um, increased the job seeker payment at the end of, well, um, towards the um, tail end of the, um, the crisis, the corona, um, coronavirus crisis, they increased job seeker by $50 a fortnight. So I guess in terms of um, the value um, of the increase, it was very minimal or it was um, modest, you might say, and certainly not the substantial increase that the um, advisory committee uh, had been calling for. No, it certainly wasn't. And obviously, 
you know, these this group of people who are on JobSeeker, you've reported in the past, um, even, even in March, you were looking at the number of people who are essentially living in poverty on these payments and mm. basically looking at that um, about a third of single parents are below the poverty line. The majority of people on JobSeeker are living below the poverty line. Like this is really difficult and it was difficult before the RBA was raising interest rates and we saw inflation going up. But obviously the pressure now is even greater when you're only seeing such minuscule increases in this payment and we really haven't seen many increases at all. In fact, the only other increases we've seen apart from those you've mentioned are really based on indexation. Mm. Could you take us through that as well, this discussion about indexation and how that affects the payments? Because there was some reporting in the Saturday paper making a big deal of the uh, increase that would happen through indexation. Uh, It's um, an area that some people might not be familiar with. Sure. Um, just before I get to the indexation yeah. um, point, I might just say, um, yeah, as, as you mentioned, a lot of the um, the data around poverty rates um, from the Hill, Hill study and other studies show, that, you know, single parents are the single the rate of um, poverty among single parents is is incredibly high in, in terms of um, cohorts. That cohort is really um, vulnerable to poverty, and the the government should be commended because one of the really substantial changes they did make um, was um, the change to uh, parenting payment eligibility. Um, Just briefly, um, Mm. you know, it used to be um, um, when your child turned eight, you were moved on to the job seeker payment. That was something that was uh, brought in under the Howard government, but the Howard government had um, essentially grandfathered a cohort of people who would remain under those arrangements and then I guess it famously or infamously the Gillard government removed that grandfathering uh, which um, through uh, you know tens of thousands of more um, from primarily single mothers into poverty um, and so Labor has more or less um, reversed that change which I think was um, not just a sort of decision made for the policy benefits but also kind of uh, felt like um a kind of uh, you know um, resolving its uh, resolving itself of the mistakes of the past kind of situation, um, mm. and so that's that age has now been increased back to fourteen, so lower than it was, which is sixteen, but still really substantial. That was a, a recommendation of the uh, um, another advisory body, the Women's um, or the uh, Gender um, Equality Advisory Committee. I, I think I butchered the name there, but that that group, um, and so that was really welcome and will make a big difference um, on indexation. Yes, yeah, so um, welfare payments are um, uh, increased um, based on. Uh, various factors either once a year or twice a year, depending on which payment. Um, and so at the moment, um, you know, the job seeker payment has been increasing, um, I guess, more than usual because it's uh, tied to the um, inflation rate. Um, and so um, some of the reporting has you sort of made the point that when the $40 a fortnight job seeker increase uh, is implemented, the, the budget measure, um, it will also be combined with a, another increase, which is the increase from indexation. So really that that, um, that increase, which is going to come into effect in September, um, will not be $40 a fortnight. It will be more than that. I, I haven't done the um, sort of back of the envelope uh, maths on how much it will be, but, uh, you know, probably somewhere in the order of 
60 or 70 dollars a fortnight increase, I would say, um, and that's because of the indexation. But I mean, the, the main point to make is like that's that's normal. That's what mm. um, happens all the time. I, I, th- I guess the the sort of other question that you might um, that some people have is is I guess why the delay in the increase in the the job seeker rate to September? Why not do it sooner than that? Um, I imagine that that is probably due to um, sort of just parliamentary processes and, and, and that sort of thing, um, or that they just wanted to do it neatly and have it all, you know, on the same day as the indexation takes place. Um, but, you know, um, I guess, you know, making the point that a lot of people are struggling at the moment. Yeah, a couple it has real-world consequences, doesn't it? It does. So, you know, people are going to be waiting longer for an increase which has already been... Um, described uh, as as inadequate by groups like the Australian Council of Social Service and the like. So, mm. And they're so waiting kind of, all yeah. through winter, which is also a time of pressure for budgets. Yeah, and I should um, note as well, well, like, and the government's been, um, you know, been at pains to point this out, um, mm. there will be energy bill relief as well for um, people, um, sort of varies by state by state, but for people primarily who have, you know, um, healthcare concession cards, um, which, which is people on the job seeker payment, you, they'll have access to, um, you know, between I think $250 and $500 in energy bill relief. So I guess um, there is that too. And there's also been the changes to rental assistance, although they won't come into effect until um, September as well. And there's a whole broad debate you can have about the merits of um, changes to rental assistance or whether or not that benefits uh, people on payments or landlords. Um, we, don't, mm. we don't have time to get into that now. But <laughs> So there's the, there's a whole, um, you know, the government will say, look, don't just focus on the, the $40 a fortnight. Um, there's We're doing more than that, um, which um, that's their perspective and important to, to put that forward. But certainly, you know, a lot of people, um, a lot of groups have been, still critical that it's not been enough. No, I don't think it is. I think obviously Jim Chalmers, the treasurer, has tried to say I'm trying to make sure this isn't inflationary Um, and that's been the way that he's couched it is we're just Mm. doing the most we can do in the economic Mm. circumstances we're in. But there certainly have been people saying they don't think this would be inflationary and have you looked at the stage three tax cuts that will (laughs) be very inflationary? Um, you know, with wealthier people putting their money into the economy when they have lots more money to use with Indeed. their disposable income. Indeed. And, and I mean, I, I'm, I'm not an economist. I have no background in economics. It's a, you know, but I, I kind of feel like the debate around whether or not measure A or measure B is inflationary, like, you know, mm. the commentary I've seen around, so for example, the job seeker, the changes job seeker and the sort of um, uplift in, in welfare payments more broadly, like, you know, some economists think it will be, you know, inflationary to a small amount. Other people um, sort of think it won't be. But I think, I think like, from my perspective at least, I think, like, the, the important question is, like, uh, Okay, if it is inflationary, like, is it worth it? Like, is is what we is what the government is doing uh, necessary? Because I mean, you know, if, if the only question is inflation, then you know you can make drastic decisions in government if you want to 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 really clamp down on inflation. But like, a lot of those things people would find to be um, terrible, right? So yeah. like. If the question has got to be like, whatever impact this, you know the changes to welfare payments may have on inflation, is that 
um, you know, not even a price to pay, but like, is are those changes necessary? Are they required? And I, I don't see many credible people who say, no, job seeker didn't need to be increased, right? Like, um, you've got the economic inclusion committee saying it, but like more broadly, like economists agree that something had to be done. So like, yeah. it's kind of like this was a necessary thing that had to happen. And I feel like that should, that's like the starting point of the, the debate really. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, it's something that is needed. And I think if we look at, you know, real world effects, people are not spending money on things like medication or food. Um, so I doubt that that's going to be inflationary if you think about that, because they're essential mm. things that people aren't able to spend their money on. Um, they're not going out and going on a holiday or spending it on a yacht. Um, <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> but I did actually see there was a video from maybe it was the Today Show and they were in Double Bay or something like that, a very rich suburb at least of Sydney, right. talking to these wealthy people about how they were going to cut back in these really difficult times and one of the men said that he was going to have to sell his third boat which was a real shame and I couldn't, I think he said it with a straight face and I actually believe it. So, I, I, yeah, I don't know. It's a different world in some places in Australia, but it was yeah. a very um, surprising video to watch. Uh, but it does bring uh, it home, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would hope that the, uh, <laughs> I would hope that whichever um, breakfast program was showing that sort of was showing it with uh, their tongues firmly planted in their cheeks, even if the yeah, interviewee was, was not in on the joke. <laughs> no, there was, there definitely was. There's a lot of sarcasm um, and eye rolling. So I think it was couched in the right way. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, that going back to the job seeker, one yeah. of your kind of points in this um, article about the poverty line, and it's something that's come up for us many times, is that often if someone hears job seeker, they'll go, okay, well, that's the one for people who are out of work or they're underemployed, so they're looking for work right now. Um, and so, of course, that's their status. But then there are so many people on job seeker who, in fact, are too unwell to look for work. Um, and maybe they have a disability or a chronic illness and are very much not eligible for the disability support pension, which is a higher payment. And so they have to get uh, medical certificates to remain on this payment for a certain number of months to years. And then eventually it runs out. So there is this other cohort of people who are also on JobSeeker um, and struggling as well. And it's something that's very much obscured in public discussions of this issue, and it's not something even really politicians seem to acknowledge very much, at least in public conversations. And I wondered mm. if you just had any kind of observations in your years of reporting in terms of the way that politicians and policymakers see the role of job seeker and how or whether they even acknowledge this other kind of invisible layer of people who are kind of stuck between they've kind of been lost in the cracks between job seeker and the disability support pension and it's kind of an elephant in the room that no one really wants to talk about yeah i mean it's a sort of elephant in the room for some politicians uh and perhaps something as you said that's obscured or a bit of a mystery i think the sad truth is for other politicians maybe they are aware and have just decided to uh 
you know, skirt over that those facts to suit their own purposes. I mean, um, Gareth Hutchins at the ABC has done some great reporting on the sort of myths of dull, quote unquote, dull bludging and and that sort of thing that you know do they date back decades and as something that. Um, politicians have um, sort of employed for their own purposes um, throughout times in Australian political history. I think we are really close to seeing um, a sort of, well, I think we are seeing truly a, a re-emergence of that kind of um, rhetoric in some um, areas at the moment. Um, you know, when you hear people say, well, we've got a labour shortage and there are more um, people than ever on um, the job seeker payment, or there are more people on the job seeker payment than um, there were before the pandemic. Um, what they're not saying is, as you pointed out, um, you know, around 40% of those people are classified by Centrelink as being unable to work full time, primarily because of disability or illness. And so, if you consider what are some of the jobs where there are shortages and what sorts of jobs could you imagine people who have chronic illnesses or uh, mental health conditions, um, you know, quite serious mental health conditions or dis other disabilities, what sort of jobs might they be able to do? There's a clear mismatch there. So it's it's not just that we've got um, all these people that are on the job seeker payment living it up on a payment well below the poverty line, choosing not to go and take these jobs which are on offer. There's just... Um, a mismatch. And the, the second point is the job, um, a lot of politicians will say, well, you know, our focus has got to be on getting people uh, into work, um, which sounds great. And, mm. you know, in theory, sure, I agree. But like, there's never any, nothing ever follows comes after that point, right? It's just, no. you know, for example, oh, you know, I'm not sure about increasing the job seeker payment, we should be focused on getting people into work. Okay. And what comes next, right? Because if you look at the, the figures, um, and Michael Clapdoor at the um, uh, Parliamentary Library um, has done, does some great tweets and I would um, mm, really he does. Encourage, encourage people to follow his tweets, entirely factual as his his requirement as a public servant, but um, uh, so it's at who be kind to, that's his handle. Anyway, he's, he's done some great um, charts and the like. And one chart I find incredibly um uh, illuminating is a chart which just shows the average time that people have spent on the job seeker payment or what was called new start over the past decade or so and it is literally just a line that is going upwards like the trend is just every quarter it goes up and what that means in simple terms is your average person at a given time is spending longer on the job seeker payment on unemployment benefits than they were in the past. And this is during a period when job seeker has been at historical lows, right? Yeah. So you have to ask yourself if we think that keeping the job seeker payment low is is the secret to getting people back into work, what what is the what does the data say? And it, it shows that those people are just spending longer on the payment and more time in poverty. So mm -hmm. like I just think that listeners, um, people, you know, hearing the debate when they hear things like, oh, well, you know, we should need to focus you know, on getting people into work, that really needs to be interrogated. Firstly, are those jobs that are available appropriate for 
um, the people on unemployment benefits or, are, as you mentioned, are some of the people on unemployment benefits really not on the right payment should they be on a, a disability support pension, right? Yeah. Um, and, and just a final point, um, you know, the, the idea of the job seeker payment is supposed to be that it is there for people as a sort of stopgap payment. You lose your job, okay, you, you get on to unemployment benefits for a short period of time, ideally, and then you get back into work. But that's not what the payment is. That's not actually how it's operating at the moment. Um, the average uh, time that people are spending on, on job seeker payment at the moment is, is several years, right? Mm. It's, that's, it's a subsistence payment for people who are basically locked out of the labour market and of other disability support payments and are required to, um, you know, get by on, on the bare minimum, maybe doing some casual work if they can get it and topping that up with JobSeeker or just living on JobSeeker. That's the, that's the reality. Yeah. And another one of those words or phrases that gets bandied about that I, it's just burnt into my brain now because I heard it so many times and it was actually Julia Gillard who kept saying it. Um, I'm sure she wasn't the only one. And it was this phrase, the dignity of work, making it sound like mm. you must be not, you know, you must have no dignity if you're not at work. It it just somehow bestows upon you dignity by working. And it's some kind of, it kind of adds, it adds this moral dimension to whether you're in work or not, uh, which I found really problematic for obvious reasons. Um, but taking us to the DSP, which you also just mentioned there, for those thinking, oh, well, obviously, you know, if you're eligible, I'm sure, you know, you'd get the DSP. Well, to get the DSP, you have to have your condition had been fully treated, which that's a rabbit hole I've heard to mm. prove that it's been fully treated because there are all kinds of things they expect you have, to have done that might not be appropriate <coughs> for whatever condition you have, but also that it's fully stabilised, which is another thing which is so rare pretty much in chronic illness yes. um, and even in disabilities for something to have been fully stabilised. So that really does, I guess, make it super hard for anyone to to do that and then you kind of need to meet all these impairment tables or certain points you know in either one impairment table or across multiple and then you hear of people applying and then getting waiting a whole year for their claim to be assessed mm -hmm. and then it's rejected and then they have to appeal it and then it's rejected and then they appeal and it's rejected and then on the fourth go it's approved and this might be years down the track so for anyone not quite aware of the reality of the DSP, that's just some of the anecdotes I've heard and I'm absolutely appalled, really. Yeah, well, the, the majority of people who apply for the DSP are rejected and I think that um, you mentioned, um, you know, what um, the Julie Gillard had been sort of saying about the dignity of mm. work and, and that sort of thing. I, I, I don't recall that I suspect, I mean, those changes to the, to the DSP um, came about under the Gillard government and they were... Uh, um, someone with a longer, better memory than me. I was just out of high school at the time, actually, but um, will be able to correct me. But um, there was, as I was similar to what I was talking about, a, a concerted campaign in some media organisations around that period of time that talked about all these myths and, um, you know, demonising, um, demeaning rhetoric about um, people on the DSP at the time because the numbers of people on the payment had, had swelled. They were at record highs and they would find these cases about people or, you know, refer to people in derogatory terms as, oh, just people with a bad back and things like that. And the government um, 
um, changed the criteria such that it is now so difficult to get onto the payment. And so mm. because of that, now you have all these people who um, are on JobSeeker payment and they just uh, have remained on JobSeeker payment, right, because there are reasons why they're finding it difficult to get into work. It's not just, uh, you know, I, I, the payment is so low, uh, it, you know, it's, it's the biggest belief that people could think that there's a wide, uh, you know, a huge, this huge group of people that have just decided to, to live in those conditions, no. right? These, these issues are, are more complicated. Exactly. Uh, than that. And it, it's not a voluntary thing that you would just go, oh, sure, <laughs> I'll, I'll live on that. Um, you know, and yeah, I don't know, my mind boggles, but I think a lot of people may not be aware of all this detail that's going on behind the scenes. We only see the headlines. And so that's why it's so important to have this conversation with you, Luke. Uh, I am speaking with Luke Henrique Gomez from The Guardian Australia. He's the social affairs and inequality editor there. I did want to touch on um, parents next because we talked about parent single parents um, mm. and the change to that and I actually didn't even realize that the parenting payment um, still required mutual obligations um, for those people so there you go they just mm. come up everywhere don't they <laughs> um, but there's also parents next which was a very very well, in my opinion, terrible program um, that we talked about quite a lot. And that was also changed uh, and to great relief of those parents in that program. Could you just briefly explain to us, you know, what's happened with Parents Next? Sure. So uh, Parents Next was a program for uh, people on the parenting payment for, with children as young as I think it's nine months up to um, six. And uh, they were required to go to these, this sort of pre-employment um, preparation program with private job agencies. And, and you know, some of the um, stories that we reported on um, were pretty shocking, you know, people mm. made to – the one that came up a lot was people made to go to story time at the library with their kid or play group um, in order to keep receiving their um, parenting payment and, you know um, – as um, parents know, you've got a young child. But leaving aside the, the merits of that, if you've got a young child and your life is complicated, so you, you have your payments stopped because you didn't take your child to, to play group um, or to, to story time. And librarians were saying that they were having job agency consultants coming into the library to check that people were um, bringing it. Single mothers That's primarily nice. were bringing their kids to, to story time, like, Yes, as you said, it's it's just absolutely wild, right? Mm. So the government has, um, after a lot of lobbying and advocacy from um, parenting or single mothers um, organisations, um, in particular, um, and and Summers and, and other others as well, have um, decided to uh, abolish the Parents Next program from from next year. And in the meantime, they've basically stopped all compliance and made it voluntary. So anyone who's in the program can no longer have their parent their payments stopped. They can choose to go and receive um, support if they want to, but they they're not. Uh, required to, and then the government says it's going to create a new program which is going to design, and, and that program will be voluntary. So, um, uh, you know, parents between children between the ages of nine months and and six will have access to some kind of pre-employment preparation program, but it won't be something that's kind of foisted upon them. So, if they want to prioritise, um, you know caring for their and raising their, their children and, and doing 
other things or doing that sort of preparation stuff in their own time and, you know, without sort of some level of compliance over the top of that, then they'll be uh, able to, which I think is a great development. Mm, mm. Yep. It's finally (laughs) really exciting to hear change. Uh, One area we haven't seen change, but there is perhaps some hope as well, Luke, is also this $7 billion private provider kind of industry that has Mm. been created around mutual obligations and job seeking and employability. And uh, really some kind of shocking and bizarre things have come up it's certainly across your time of reporting and you've put some into a piece today as well on it and it's certainly this piece really sits within a context of the government considering whether they potentially shift some of these areas that have been privatised back into the public sector and there's been submissions for example from um, the CPSU which is the public sector union saying, you know, we really think that these types of, um, you know, compliance issues and mutual obligation systems, um, they're they're punitive, as they've said, they've been doing more harm than good, but also uh, that if they're brought in-house, there's more control over this situation um, by the public service and Mm. government as well. Could you talk to us about what you've just reported on today within that context of this broader discussion around you know, the, the privatisation of um, employment services in general? Sure. So the story today is about a program called the Employability Skills Training uh, Program, which is a, a um, essentially a three-week course that job seekers are required to do when they've been uh, in the system for a set amount of time and usually four months. Um, and we reported um, about um, one um, example or instance of the course, which is run by a private provider and in actual fact um, a a private provider that subcontracted out the training course to another private provider. Anyway, so this specific uh, course, which I should um, note the the provider and the department uh, or the providers have blamed on, um, you know, a specific trainer who they claim has gone outside the curriculum. Put that that out there. in this course, um, a job seeker who spoke to us and, and took detailed notes and saved links in the online Zoom session and things like that said that they had to watch these very strange and irrelevant um, YouTube videos. Um, one YouTube video run a motivational montage um, where, you know, it makes points like, it doesn't matter if you don't have a dime in the bank. That was uh, posted by a YouTube channel called uh, Law of Attraction Coaching. Um, other videos about... Um, you know, uh, using vision boards to uh, um, for success. Uh, that was titled "Drawing Your Dreams Into Reality." Another video uh, called "Make Body Language Your Superpower," where um, students from Stanford were giving tips on on body language, and then just like bizarre stuff like um, uh, in a session on, for example, um, workplace health and safety, they watched a, a video specific to the safety protocols of a Dutch. Um, gas company. Uh, uh, so just like really, uh, you know, bizarre and mm. irrelevant videos in many cases. And then also, uh, you know, they were encouraged to use chat GPT to um, research job roles and write cover letters and things like that, which um, 
you know, and maybe there's sort of an open question about the merits of that, but the, the videos in particular, and supposedly, according to the job seeker we spoke to, um, primarily that was how time was spent, was just, you know, on Zoom watching these videos. Um, this program, now I should point out, this is one specific instance of this course, uh -huh. of which there are many providers and there are many um, different courses um, and we're not suggesting that this is what's happening across the entire program, but the program itself will see about $500 million paid to private providers over the next five years. So um, I think maybe similar to what we've seen in the um, in the um, private training colleges sort of world, the vet world in the past, um, yeah, there's um, real questions about how um, much oversight is is provided because I'm not sure about you, Amy, but just talking and we've done stories about these sorts of things in the past. Um, when you talk to people who've been on the job seeker payment about the the things that they've been required to do, mm. um, being you know, you say to them, oh, what about things like uh, being made to being taught about personal hygiene and things like that? Like they're like, yeah, that we had to do that or we had to do a basic Microsoft Word course or things like that. Like these are things that taxpayers are paying for that job seekers are made to do regardless of whether or not it actually is of benefit to them. No, um, it doesn't sound targeted, does it? No, no, it doesn't. It, it sounds like um, it, at least critics sort of argue that it's about just making sure that people have something that they are made to do in order to get their payment um, and, you know, whether or not that's based in evidence or is about other, <laughs> other um you know, um, there for other reasons, I think, is, a, is an open question. Yeah, it certainly seems very punitive. Um, and, you know, as you point out in this article, the person taking the notes who gave you this information was a 26-year-old honours graduate, um, you know, and I'm sure they, with their particular university background, some of those courses might not have been relevant to them. Um, or maybe they've already learned Microsoft Word in primary school, depending on when they grew up. There's so many different um, issues with that that particular uh, course, but also just for the privatisation in general. Do you think the government has an appetite to shift this? Because it would be a, quite a major thing to actually take this out of private hands. Uh, I don't know if they will prime, uh, completely take it out of private hands, but I think that there is definitely an appetite for change. Um, I mean, there's a parliamentary committee run by the Labor backbencher, chaired by the Labor backbencher, Julian Hill at the moment, which is looking into this. And it's kind of uh, really, to be honest, taken an approach that we haven't really seen in um, the, the numerous investigations and inquiries and government commission reports that we've seen into employment services since it was privatised under the, the Howard government. So, like, this, this inquiry is really asking questions like, is privatisation in um, employment services... A good thing or not, and mm. um, do mutual obligations work? And do the is compliance evidence based? And it's like questions like Julian Hill calls it the first principles inquiry. Previously, all the inquiries that we've looked at, or we've had, have just been sort of how do we tinker with the system to make it slightly more effective within the the sort of framework of a private privatized system, right? This yeah. inquiry is asking. You know, Australia is the only country in the world in the OECD that has private, fully privatised employment services. Other countries don't 
do that to, to this to level. And it was kind of an experiment really from the Howard government when they decided to just go fully private. And this inquiry is asking, is this effective? And I think the fact that the inquiry is in place, the government has already listened to its recommendation to abolish parents next. And the Prime Minister this month was basically criti criticising the system. He's indicated an appetite for change in employment services and says it's about, you know, too much of it is about ticking boxes, which mm. I don't think anybody could argue with. There is appetite. The, the question, I think, is what will that uh, reform or change look like? And so, you know, you've got groups like the CPSU um, lobbying hard for um, for a return to a public system. They call for a, a modern uh, Commonwealth employment service, um, which I, I don't personally recall, but I know a lot of people have very positive um, memories of, of uh, engaging with that service, certainly much more so than the privatised system that exists today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and just finally, Luke, with the budget, there was a quote-unquote large cost uh, that everyone kept on bringing up. And, of mm. course, defence was a big cost, but less people were concerned about that. <laughs> um, but the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, is a big cost. And yes. the Prime Minister, in advance of the budget, was saying he's concerned and that he wants to establish a growth cap, which is now a growth target. Um, essentially, this caused a lot of concern amongst disability advocates and people who have a disability and rely on the NDIS for supports. Mm. Um, and I just guess I wanted to get a sense from you as to the response from the disability community to what the government has really flagged as basically their intention to somehow rein in spending on the NDIS over time. Um yeah, I mean, I think the the response has been varied from um, you know severe concern to um, sort of uh, sort of a cautious uh, outlook because you know really the question is what are they going to do to meet these targets or these yeah these cost targets right and none of that has been explained I think. Um, you know, the government or um, Labor have sort of first sort of made the costs um, discussion about um, uh, misuse of taxpayer funds, fraud, uh, overcharging, things like that, like basically participants being overcharged and therefore the taxpayer being overcharged or fraud and things like that. Uh, I suspect... Um, that the if you look at the you know the many billions of dollars that the government is saying that it is going to shave off the increase in um, spending, uh, um, it, it is a little hard to believe that it is just that which will reap those savings because mm. the costs that were projected, the the increase in costs were that were projected were quite steep, right? So. Uh, I think the real question is like they've announced that this figure on the you know this is how they're gonna this is what they want the cost trajectory to be how will they get there um, and so the real you know once that there is some detail about that I think that's when we're going to see um, we're going to see really what the the sector and what the disability community um, makes of 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 the government's plans. Like Bill Shorten has been, you know, at pains to sort of say there's not going to be changes to eligibility um, and, and things like that. Um, 
we, we shall see. Um, there have been, you know, some pilots announced. For example, there's a, a big focus um, about um, people with autism, autistic people, um, children in particular, on this, being on the scheme more than was envisaged and perhaps staying on the scheme longer than was envisaged. And there's some sort of intervention uh, programs, which I know there are mixed views about that. those programs that have um, sort of pilots that have been introduced. But, you know, the, really the, the, a lot of the increased costs is, 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 it, is about more people um, than expected getting onto the program. And so uh, we, uh, we can only, you know, wait to see what the government actually announces about how they're going to get there. They need to get the states and territories on board. But I also think it's great that you mentioned that, um, you know, um, the NDIS is getting uh, this hyper-focused, um, you know, in terms of um, the budget, and there are certainly other um, parts of government spending that don't get the same um, scrutiny. scrutiny. Mm, indeed, and not kind of paraded around in the news, you know, like how much money are you spending on this? Who's getting on it? Are they disabled enough? Um, yes. You know, these are really kind of ridiculous conversations. But, uh, you know, as you said, I think there's a lot of scepticism in the disability community given how difficult it is to get on the NDIS and how so many people's plans are being cut. There's a lot of fighting at the moment just to keep the funding that they've got. So, um, yeah, there's a lot happening behind the scenes that we don't get to hear about except through people like you, Luke, and your reporting. So thank you so much for everything you've done for us. Uh, today in taking us through these issues. I really do appreciate it. And um, yeah, thank you so much for your time and all of your reporting in this really important area. Um, as always, I've really enjoyed um, the chance to um, to talk about these issues, Amy. And I think, you know, the fact that you uh, give uh, space for these issues to be discussed um, is uh, really important. Uh, and I hope that I'm sure that the, you know, those listening uh, appreciate it. And I, I know I certainly do. So thanks so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've just been speaking with Luke Henrique Gomez, Social Affairs and Inequality Editor from The Guardian Australia. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. To get on to fungi, one of the all-time favourite topics on this show, and as I said at the top of the show, it is both fungi and trees, and they are so interconnected in different ways. But, of course, as we'll find out from Alison Puglio, there are so many different types of fungi, so many different things that they do in their environments. And so it's going to be, I think, an absolute delight to talk with Alison again. So I am about to speak now with Alison Puglio, who is an ecologist, a natural historian, an environmental photographer, and she's the author of a few books now. The latest book that we are going to discuss is Underground Lovers, Encounters with Fungi. That's out through New South Books, We've had the pleasure of speaking with Alison in the past about wild mushrooming, which was really looking at foraging and foraying and identifying mushrooms. And then also the first chat we had with Alison was about the allure of fungi, and that was published through CSIRO and featured a number of Alison's gorgeous photographs, as does this latest book as well. And uh, Alison... She has so many talents, but at the moment she's been conducting a lot of workshops and forays 
taking people out in the fields because it is autumn and so there's a lot of sporing bodies that are above ground for us to be able to look at. So without further ado, I welcome back onto the show, show favourite, Alison Puglio. Hi there, Alison, and thank you very much for coming back on. Oh, good morning, Amy. It's always an absolute pleasure to talk fungi with you. I love it too. It's a true pleasure. I really love probably doesn't cut it, but I'm sure everyone will tell how enthusiastic we both are during this conversation. I was saying off air, I have the best listeners because they've been updating me about the fungi in their areas because I was really a bit sad that the sporing bodies were taking a while to pop up where I was and I was starting to think that it was not going to happen, which I know is not possible, but I was getting plenty of gorgeous photos of fungi from others around the state sharing them with me. So I'm so lucky to get a statewide update, but you're also out in the field at the moment a lot, aren't you? You've been out in New South Wales and Victoria, out in the country, taking people through some of these beautiful forests and really bringing fungi up close and personal. And obviously that's a great chance to talk about your book. Look, it's been just the most amazing autumn so far, even though, as you say, it did get cold quite quickly and the rain came late. So in some areas there have been fewer sporing bodies pop up than perhaps we usually expect, but there's just such an amazing groundswell of interest across a wide spectrum of different people, not just your foragers and forayers, but I'm finding people like filmmakers coming along to workshops, fashion designers, people writing crime fiction, all kinds of different interests. So it's been wonderful to be out in the field in all kinds of different forests, as you say, across New South Wales, ACT, Tassie, Victoria. And I've just come down yesterday from Beechworth and Wurundji, that region, northeast Victoria, where even though it was down to minus three <laughs> in the morning, there's still been plenty of fungi around. So it was wonderful to work with the, the land care people up there. Wow. You're getting around, aren't you, Alison? Like, I'm so impressed. Oh, uh, and you, it's good fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the whole book really is almost a travel book in a way because it also takes us to different locations and that's how you introduce different subject matter in the book. And we will get to that in a moment. But I'm going to assume no knowledge of some of our listeners just in case they haven't heard our previous discussion. So I thought we'd just set the scene for people who aren't familiar with the third F, the fungi kingdom, and talk a little bit about the basics of fungi because, as you point out early on in the book, they are very much maligned. They're not often seen, as we, we've we just discussed, they're often below ground. We don't always see them above ground. And of course, autumn is the perfect time to visualize them, but they're also very much ephemeral. They have lots of different associations. So could you just take us through and introduce us to this kingdom and why fungi are not part of the other Fs, why they're not animals, why they're not plants? Why do they have their own special kingdom and where did they come from? Well, absolutely. So as you suggest, Amy, the fungi very much were the third F or the forgotten kingdom and so much of our concept about what nature is, what biodiversity is or what the environment is has always been premised on flora, on plants or fauna, animals, and that the middle, the third F, the fungi, haven't really been part of our conservation programs, of our education. If you go to university here, you can do zoology or botany or environmental science, but fungi rarely come into the picture. It's very hard to study fungi. 
maybe at an undergraduate level in Australia, you can at a postgraduate level. And also I think just the fact that they, as you say, they, they are so ephemeral. We see those sporing bodies such as mushrooms or puffballs or corals and other forms pop up for just a few weeks of the year. Most of the year we're not aware of them because that mycelium, the actual fungus organism that forms this amazing tapestry of long cells called hyphae under the soil, that's the living, growing, feeding part of the organism, it's out of our sight for most of the time and it's only when you scratch around in the leaf litter or turn the compost or roll over some bark that you're likely to see that network of these long fibres called the fungus mycelium. So I think that invisibility, that ephemerality, but also the fact that we've been so suspicious of fungi for so long that the default response, when people send me an email, they're worried about fungi in their gardens, and I think, wow, why is it they're not excited about the fungi? They get, why are they worried? And I think that if you look at how mycology, the scientific study of fungi, started in Australia, it started with the appointment of a Scottish agricultural scientist called Daniel McAlpin, and he was employed specifically to look at rusts, that is a microfungus that can cause a disease of our cereal crop. So I think how fungi started was very much from the standpoint of fungus as problem rather than fungi as holding the whole terrestrial, you know, ecosystems together. But that is changing, Amy, as you've seen, and, and thanks to the great work you do on radio as well, we're, sta we're now starting to recognise that fungi are doing incredible things in our ecosystems. They're holding soils together, they're underpinning functioning forests, they're connecting up plants, they're providing food, they're recycling organic matter, they do all these incredible things. And when they become problematic, it's often a reflection of something that's out of whack in that system, whether it's an agricultural system or a park or garden or something, they're not usually the cause of problems, but rather a symptom of a synergy of bigger changes in that system that favours the flourishing of one species. Mm. It also reminds me of something, another negative association and, and another point of your point you've just made, which is, you know, when something's out of whack, when something's wrong. And we've seen so many states in Australia have a lot of flooding, major floods. And, you know, I've, I've had people contact me saying that they, you know, are really struggling. They're not even living in their house because they've got mould all through their walls now. And that's becoming a bigger issue because of climate change. And of course, mould is a certain type of fungi. So is it any wonder that they get this bad reputation? Because there are these things that I guess they can be seen when they're not a beautiful sporing body above the ground, when there's something else that can disrupt human life, then suddenly it becomes a negative and it's hard to disentangle those reputations. Absolutely. And they go back for centuries throughout history. And a lot of them did come from misunderstanding of what fungi were and what they do. But you're right, most of the fungi that actually cause problems to human health, if you think of things like athlete's foot or tinea or even dandruff comes from a fungus, these things are often microfungi or the mould in the flooded house or the, the rust or the smut or the blast on the cereal crop. Most of these are what we call microfungi. We can't, they don't actually produce a visible sporing body like a mushroom. They often release their spores directly from the mycelium. But most of the macrofungi, the familiar mushrooms and puffballs and other forms, they generally don't cause problems in systems. And even the microfungi, again, it's usually a sign of that system being out of whack in some way. The conditions have changed to favour a particular organism. But certainly those ones, I mean, no one wants to live in a house full of mould. Of course, that's got a high chance of causing you some kind of illness or just feeling, you know, unwell being in that mouldy environment. And But what's interesting, what you said about those floods, I remember driving through New South Wales at that time. And on one side of the road, there were paddocks agricultural paddocks mm. that were completely 
flooded. And on the other side of the road was a forest which was not flooded. And I thought this was a fantastic visual example of how when your soil is intact, as it is in a forest system that hasn't been, you know, too hard, heavily managed, when you've got that mycelial architecture and plant roots, you've got air spaces in soil, the water can filtrate. And when we see that flooded paddock, that's often a sign that the soil has actually been so compressed through the use of heavy machinery or hard hooves, or for some reason we've lost that mycelial network, perhaps through tilling, or digging or some kind of soil disturbance, when we actually lose that architecture in the soil, the soil ends up either being completely waterlogged or the water sits on the surface. So I think that's quite a visual example of soils that are not in, in good condition, whereas the forest soils can actually still filtrate that water, allow it to gently trickle down through that network of mycelium and plant roots. So I think, again, you know, that the flooding we can see those very visual examples of how important it is to keep that network of fungi in the soil. Yeah, for sure. It does take us to some parts of your book, which we'll get to in a minute around soil, because that comes up quite a bit. But it also reminds me of conversations I've had about logging and how destructive it can be for those you know, heavy machinery types to not only log trees, uh, which clearly creates a major disturbance, but to then compress the soil in those forests, which, as you say, would have a really healthy ecosystem if it weren't for human disturbance and human intervention. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not saying that we should lock the forest up and they should be untouched. I think to, to get people interested in nature, we want as many people as possible to go out and experience the wonderful things of being in a forest, whether it's the birds or the river or the fungi that you're interested in. But it's always about degree and extent. And when we have clear felling or extensive roading through forests or a lot of soil disturbance, there's a risk, as you say, that we compact soils, that we spread pathogens that we don't want deeper into the forest where perhaps those parts of the forest haven't been exposed to them before. So it's always about the extent of, of that disturbance. So often natural disturbances aren't so intense that we, I mean, I'm sure we've had some huge storms and huge floods, but natural disturbances, usually the forest has enough resilience to recover. But when we clear fill, when we put extensive roading through, that's that takes a long time to get those fungi back because every tree we lose, we lose the fungal partners that are associated with them. As you, you know, and you've spoken about those mycorrhizal or plant fungus networks are pervasive throughout forests. Every single eucalypt forms connections with multiple species of fungi. So when we lose the tree, we lose the fungus as well. And when we lose the fungus, we lose all that recycling of organic matter and all that architecture. So it goes hand in hand. We lose the trees, we lose the fungi, we lose the condition of the soil too. Yeah. And you draw on some fantastic scientists and experts in this book, and there's even a whole section on women, which is fabulous, and we'll get to that. But early on in the book, you bring up the great work of Suzanne Simard, who I'm a big fan of, and she's written a fantastic book, Finding the Mother Tree, but she also does really fabulous research on those connections between old trees and their fungal partners. And you take us through a little bit of her work. Could you tell us a little bit about what we've learned from Suzanne Simard about those connections between trees and fungi? Absolutely. So we've known about this for a long time. We've known about these mycorrhizal or plant fungus symbiosis for a long, long time. But ideas like this take a long, a long time, not just to be accepted by the scientific community, but to get into the public sphere as well. And I think the work of Suzanne Simard, who's a North American forest ecologist, where she actually showed that not everything going on beneath the soil is necessarily competitive, that there's potentially a sharing of resources among trees. And not even the same species 
species or gen genus of tree, but among different genera of trees, which is a, a really astonishing discovery, that, yeah, it could, perhaps it's a little more socialist than we thought there under the soil. So she showed this. Part of the issue, I mean, there has been some people concerned about the work of of Suzanne and people like Peter Volleben in that the, the, the concern of scientists is that sometimes these powerful metaphors, such as the wood wide web, which was the one that was coined by a journalist working for Nature magazine, and he originally reported on her work back in 2000. This is such an appealing metaphor. You know, the idea that the world wide web or the internet is mirrored under the soil in the wood wide web, or rather the other way around, that the internet mirrors what's under the soil. This is such a wonderful metaphor that sometimes the metaphor can get ahead of the science. So we still don't really know the extent of these networks. We don't really know the importance of these networks or the finer details of them. But even if you, even like I said, some scientists don't like these metaphors or the anthropomorphising of calling it a mother tree. But I think what it has done is radically increased people's awareness that all those trees in the forest aren't just lone statues, disconnected. You know, that I think people now realise that every time they walk into a forest, Forest, there's a whole lot more going on beneath their feet that they can't see, that perhaps they, that we weren't aware of previously. And also, I think it changes the way we think about the garden or the area we're revegetating or the forest or whatever. I think it gives us another overlay in the way we think about them and also gives us a certain responsibility how we participate in that forest and the implications of what we're doing. So I think what it's doing, even if we don't yet have the full picture of the science. I think it's radically increasing public awareness to think in a bigger way about forest ecosystems and the interconnections between different species. Yeah, yeah. It certainly makes it easier for us to get our heads around when it's concepts that we already understand because I think it was funny. I saw a video of Peter Volubin and he was saying, well, I don't speak tree or tree-ish, so I can't speak in their language to explain what they're doing. So I can only speak in English. And, you know, this is why I use these terminologies or, or descriptors. And he said, um, interestingly, that the mother tree, that term has been around for centuries in Germany. So it's not even a new concept or a new descriptor of what was happening with trees, which I was really astonished by because I didn't realise it had such a long cultural usage in Germany. But clearly there's a lot behind that that English speakers aren't as much aware of perhaps as the German speakers are. I wanted to now move into some of the amazing places that you take us to, Alison, because there are so many amazing places you've been, clearly more than once. And as we've discussed in previous chats, you say that you get to experience both autumns, so the autumn in the Southern Hemisphere and the autumn in the Northern Hemisphere. Some might wonder if you're low in vitamin D when you're <laughs> going for, you know, the, that part of the seasons. But I think it's the best time to go travelling. So that would be my dream is to be when it's cold and beautiful. I think it's great. So let's start with one of those cold, potentially inhospitable, but I think beautiful places, and that's Iceland. And you talk about Iceland a few times in the book. The first time you talk about it is in relation to lichens. And I think they're just such a fascinating thing. We've spoken about these before, but I really want to go over the lichen discussion again and to get our heads around what the lichens are, because as you've said in the past, you know, they're not just one organism, are they? 
Absolutely not. So they are living in a symbiotic association and lichens are astonishing things. And I think oftentimes most people think of fungi, they can visualise. We all know the umbrella-shaped cap and stalk style mushroom and many people are familiar with the puffballs or the corals or the jellies, but few realise or, or more and more people are realising that the lichens are also classified within the kingdom fungi and they're probably the oldest of all the different types of fungi. And so every lichen is essentially a symbiosis or an alliance, a relationship between an alga and a fungus and their cells are intertwined. Often there are yeasts and other organisms in there as well. So it might not even be a partnership but even a community of different organisms living in association. And the great benefit of this is when you double your talents, you combine your talents, you can occupy much more extreme environments. And this is why lichens are often referred to as extremophiles or lovers of the extremes. And if you think of some of those really inhospitable places in Australia, such as the hot, dry, sandy desert country, you'll actually find lichens there forming what's called a cryptogamic or biological crust on the soil or sand surface and actually keeping that sand from blowing away, trapping a bit of moisture, trapping some nutrients, or you'll find them in places like in the intertidal zone and often use the example of, say, somewhere like Wilson's Promontory or Wineglass Bay in Tasmania, those wonderful big orange granitic boulders. That orange colour is actually a lichen living in, again, that very mm. inhospitable environment where you've got the guano of seabirds and you've got sand-laden abrasive winds. You've got the splash very of salt windy, water. Yeah. yeah, windy and salty and few organisms can tolerate those kinds of extremes. So the lichens are colonising almost every available substrate there is and they're often the first pioneers when we've got soil disturbance. I mean, soil very rarely exists in, you know, bare soil very rarely exists below the tree line. It's usually a sign of some kind of disturbance. But as soon as that soil becomes disturbed or, as in Iceland, that rock becomes revealed as the glacier recedes, among those first pioneers are your lichens. So astonishingly, astonishingly adaptable, talented <laughs> organisms in many ways. And they are part of the, the fungus kingdom and probably among the best known of the fungi in Australia. Yeah, well, you do see lichen in all kinds of places in Australia. I mean, I I said a while ago that lichen was growing on my sister's car roof. So <laughs> she's since had it washed, so it's not there anymore. That's a shame. I know, <laughs> but it did get. It was there for a long time, so it had its fair share of her roof. Um, <laughs> but you know, it. I also read about how lichen. Apparently, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but I read that they were a food source for reindeer. Indeed, and, and possibly not just reindeer. I mean, we don't really know in Australia whether there's certain mammals or other animals eating lichens. Because they've got such a, a vast cachet of different types of chemicals, over 200 chemicals, they actually are quite, I guess, oh, unpalatable for... I mean, we, we don't mm. often... There are some records of people eating lichen, but I think that you'd be pretty desperate to need to do that. It would be in a time of absolute, you know, hardship that you'd be eating lichens. But reindeers, certainly, I mean, there's not much else to eat in those, mm. you know, very, very remote, cold places. That's probably all there really is. But certainly... Lichens have been used throughout the centuries for dyeing, that's D-Y-E-I-N-G, dyeing textiles, for use in for their chemicals, for all kinds of other things as well. So they contain things like sunscreens and, 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 and other chemicals, like almost insecticides. So fascinating organisms. 
and very, yeah. very diverse as well. We've got over, I think, about 2,000 species at least that we've identified in Australia. And, and while some are very tolerant to those harsh extreme conditions, others are highly sensitive. And so some lichens are actually indicators of low levels of sulphur dioxide and other chemicals in the air, things like the beard lichens or usnea, that's U-S-N-E-A species. So we know that they only grow in areas where you've got very high air quality. So they can tell us quite a lot about the environment just by the presence or absence of certain very tolerant or very intolerant species. Wow, that's really fascinating to hear. Yeah, I'm now imagining reindeer nibbling on lichen, which is the <laughs> weirdest picture in my head right Indeed. now. Indeed. Yeah, put that in the Christmas cards, like <laughs> <laughs> Rudolph's having some lichen. Let's also talk about dying, as you said, D-Y-E-I-N-G, so dying, because you talk about your experience going on country with the Yorta Yorta aunties. And there are some things called puffballs, which are also now known as dieballs, yep. um, which yep. you tell us about. Could you share that experience with us, but also drawing on the, the puffballs and what dieballs are? Certainly. So up on the, the mighty Dungala or the Murray River, the, the Yorta Yorta women up there, the aunties, are setting up the first project via Sonia Cooper. So Hilda Stewart and Greta Morgan, two of the, the elders, are setting up a project to try and track the ethno-mycological use of fungi. So that is the human use of fungi among the Yorta Yorta people. And as we know, so much of this knowledge has disappeared when people are taken off country, when they're forbidden from speaking their own language, when they're forbidden to do the dances that pass on the knowledge of how those different animals and plants and fungi are used, this knowledge quickly gets lost. But it's an absolutely wonderful project and the first that I know of, the first ethnomycological project that I'm aware of in Australia. And so I had the great privilege of going out on country with the aunties, wandering along the river and looking at these particular dye balls. And even though when I asked them what are these called, they didn't have a name because that's been lost. They were fascinated to, to share their knowledge about how they're used. And we know various different groups have actually eaten them again in times of real hardship and before the, the puffball actually turns to a spore mass while it's still very hard and firm. But if you do a cross-section through one of these dye balls, you'll see this absolutely stunningly beautiful tessellated pattern of the different spores in their different developmental stages. And if you run your finger over it, you'll get this astonishing green, yellow, tan-coloured stain on your finger that will stay there for quite a while. <laughs> and we know that these have been used not just by Aboriginal groups, but also Māori people in New Zealand and various others throughout the world to stain various, to dye various textiles. And we've got a fabulous mycologist and textile artist and painter called Katie Syme or Katrina Syme in West Australia. And she's used these dye balls for years to dye things like cotton or silk or wool. And using different mordants with the dyes, you can get this a range of different colours that, that will be expressed by the puffball. So we know lichens as well as puffballs and other fungi have these amazing pigments. And just because a fungus is very brightly coloured, it doesn't mean that that will necessarily have those pigments. And also a red fungus doesn't necessarily produce a red dye, which is astonishing. I wasn't aware of that, not being a textile artist myself. So it was amazing to work with the, the Yorta Yorta women, also with Katie. And also there's a big dyeing 
contingent of mycologists in Sweden who've been for years working with different textiles, different fungi, and looking at how these different fungi produce different colours. So fungi aren't just used, yet yeah, for food and medicines, but for all these other, other reasons as well, such as, I mean, I, for example, the, what were they called, those Tweed Harris suits that came from the Hebridean Islands of Scotland? They were actually originally all dyed using lichens from Scotland. That's amazing. Yeah, indeed. I'm a big fan of the Outer Hebrides, so that's really cool little fact of knowledge. Yeah. I'm not surprised, actually, because they are one of the wildest places you could ever go to as well. So no doubt the lichen have a party over there. <laughs> Undoubtedly. And in those very cold environments, you don't really have that many trees. You've got a shrub layer and then you've got this amazing lichenscape, which was also the case in Iceland because they've lost so many of their forests there. I mean, people forget that Iceland once was possibly up to 50% forested. We think of it today as just being this very elemental landscape of rock. But back, you know, before the Vikings, we think up to 50% of it actually did have have forest on it and now we're down to about one percent of it is actually forested although they are trying to they've got very active forestry revegetation programs happening but now it's pretty much a lichenscape which is astonishing to, to witness the lichens pretty much are the, the dominant type of i was going to say plant but of course fungus that you'll see in the landscape wow that's so cool Alison. there's so much more in this book and one theme that comes up quite a lot is conservation of fungi. And it's something that we originally touched on a little bit, but this book really does take it a lot further and give us a better idea of the conservation landscape and I guess the regulation framework of how you would approach conservation, but also how we conserve them in a practical sense and, you know, what the barriers are to that. I did want to start that conversation about conservation with your opening anecdote because we are a politics show as well and it seemed quite interesting to me, the comment that you heard. You say that, I doubt I'm the only person on the planet to be perplexed by some politicians. I was once asked by an Australian federal member of parliament to justify why conserving biodiversity mattered. And I was momentarily stumped. Where was I to begin? It's like trying to justify why we should conserve our arms or legs, our mountains or rivers or the air we breathe. I'd wrongly assumed it was self-evident. I mean, I don't know. I think that is a tough question because I feel like most people would assume that is a basic truth that most people would accept. So how do you deal with that situation, Alison? I wonder, it's probably not a common question you get, is it, that people are asking you to justify biodiversity and why we should look after it? Yeah, look, I, I, I was stumped and I, I have to come up with more creative ways to respond to these sorts of questions. But I guess what happens when we coin a term like biodiversity, it almost becomes like this thing that we're disassociated from. It's this thing out the window, oh, there's this thing called biodiversity that's written into our planning permit, or it's this annoying thing that's in the way of where we want to do this development. Once we just called it nature, mm. <laughs> and, and nature seemed to be everything, and we were part of that. Now it's almost like this package thing, and it's a slightly more clinical term or something, I guess. And I think oftentimes, yeah, a biodiversity plan has seemed like it seems to be like an accessory rather than something with which we are inherently connected. So I guess for me it's always about trying to draw out those connections and, and fungi, I guess, almost all of our 
our biodiversity, our policies, our frameworks, our monitoring programs, our national park management plans, they've always pretty much included flora and fauna and fungi haven't actually been part of them. So my main interest in fungi is actually in their ecology and their the conservation. And a big part of what I'm trying to do is bring that layer of the fungi into people's thinking when they are writing prescriptions, when they are looking at, you know, perhaps monitoring an area or writing a new national park management plan to bring fungi in. And what's interesting, Amy, a few years ago, I looked at the management plans of 40 different national parks across Australia. And only a third of them actually mentioned the word fungi. Even though these were biodiversity plans for the park, mm. a third of them mentioned fungi, only mentioned the word fungi, and usually it was only at that very blunt level of the kingdom fungi, whereas they talked about plants and animals down to species level. And of that third, almost all of them were in a negative context. So it was fungi were this enemy to this other thing called biodiversity, i.e. plants and animals. And so the, the actual importance or significance of fungi as you know, inter interconnected part of that national park wasn't really recognised. Fortunately, that is changing. But if you look at how, for example, our, our burning regimes, our land management regimes, they're almost always, almost always based on, say, the, the presence of a particular vegetation community or perhaps an endangered orchid or perhaps a charismatic mammal. Fungi very, very, very rarely come into that equation. So I guess I'm just trying to drop the fungi into thinking around when we think about how we set up a conservation program or we set aside a reserve or we manage a landscape, that if we think about that foundation from the start, the actual fungi within the soil, everything we do is going to be better. I mean, to think, to look at just the trees or just to look at the mammals or the parrots, it's really quite, you, you can't look at them in isolation. If we try and protect that particular orchid, we know that every orchid needs a fungus to even germinate. Or if we're trying to protect that endangered bandicoot, at this time of year, that bandicoot could be feeding almost solely on fungi. So to look at these things in isolation is quite outdated thinking. And fortunately, there are many people now within Landcare, within conservation. I haven't found them yet in, in, <laughs> in Parliament, but thinking about fungi in this much broader way and actually bringing them into the thinking around how we could conserve and how we protect environments. Mm. And I know there are groups that have come up to try and conserve fungi and you open the book talking about the International Society for Fungal Conservation, the Congress there, which was in North Yorkshire that you attended. There's also a group which was launched by evolutionary biologist Toby Kears called the Society for the Protection of Underground Networks, which sounds like almost James Bondish. Um, <laughs> that sounds really awesome. So there are these groups that seem to be focusing on fungi and, for, the, for example, that group, the acronym being SPUN, uh, looking at mapping fungal networks and quantifying biodiversity hotspots you point out that clearly it's difficult to conserve fungi if you don't know all the species that are out there and, you know, they're not always visible. Some might be not around for years and then suddenly they appear like that coral fungus that you talk about in the book. But there's also an issue with conservation and this need to have very charismatic or aesthetically pleasing fungi because often people want to protect those ones more than the quote-unquote ugly fungi. So, you know, could you tell us a little bit about locally here some of the endangered fungi, some of the 
the fungi that need to be protected. And I know you say a lot of them aren't that particularly good looking, but they, you know, are quite important to us. Oh, Amy, no such thing as an ugly fungus. <laughs> I know. I'm, that's what, I'm using air quotes, everyone, on the radio. <laughs> so, yeah, really, really interesting question. And there's lots of big challenges around fungal conservation because they have been thought of so neg- negatively throughout history. But I guess the first part of that is increasing public awareness. And I think that's what I'm seeing a lot of conservation groups do now. They're producing their little D-out folder field guides for people to take into the field. We've seen those for birds and orchids and mammals for years but now a lot of these land care groups and conservation groups are very proud of their little guide that shows their local fungi. In terms of knowing about endangered fungi, when something hasn't been monitored, it's really hard to know, is it really rare or endangered or is it simply under-surveyed? So if you look at something like the Atlas of Living Australia, which is an online repository for biological data, flora, fauna and fungi, there's lots and lots of records for flora and fauna, but we're only just starting to build up those records for fungi. So it's very hard to talk about rarity until we've actually done those surveys. There's certainly a couple of species we know that are rare because the habitats they live in are rare. So, for example, there's one fungus called tea tree fingers, which could could come into that ugly fungus group for some people because it's not this beautiful charismatic showy thing but it grows on old unburnt tea tree and if you think about where tea tree grows it's coastal and a lot of our coastal areas have been developed for housing because everyone wants their lovely sea view and to be able to walk to the beach but we've lost this habitat type where this particular fungus lives so traditionally how we've tried to protect fungi is to simply protect as wide a variety of different habitats as possible in the hope that this surrogate or umbrella approach scoops up the fungi as well. But we don't know that that always works because fungi do have quite specific and particular requirements. So the more we can do, the more surveying, the more we can understand about what's out there, the better we can protect them. And most of this survey work, it's not coming from mycologists because we have very few mycologists employed in Australia. It's coming from the public. It's your field naturalist, your citizen scientists, your interested people. So, for example, yesterday I was so so thrilled when we were out looking for fungi that there was three or four people uploading those records to iNaturalist. This is another online repository of biological data. And that record, those records are so vitally important because it helps us understand what fungi are growing where. Are they changing in distribution? Are some very seldom recorded and perhaps they are rare? So there's lots of big questions around distribution, around rarity. But one of the best initiatives that happened in recent years, you're probably aware of this concept called red lists. Yes. And, and red lists, yeah, are basically listing species that we think are vulnerable or at risk of extinction. And the very first red lists were formed oh, 60, 70 years ago in Glow in Switzerland as part of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. But fungi weren't included on those lists. So just a few years ago, two very innovative mycologists, Greg Mueller and Anders Dahlberg, and also three actually, and Mikhail Krikarev from Sweden as well, they set up the Global Fungal Red List Program, which means people can nominate species that they think perhaps are vulnerable at risk of extinction. They're then assessed by a committee who determines if they really are rare or not, and they end up on these red lists. And even though that red list doesn't give them any formal legal protection, it does prioritise them for conservation programs and possibly funding. So these have been absolutely tremendous initiatives in the last few years and many Australians have been involved in that global fungal red list project which is very inspiring. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was really interested that there were about 28 actually on that list of endangered species. So at least there are some that we know about across the world. So it's important to conserve fungi for the reasons that you mentioned, but also one other reason which stuck out to me in your book was about fungi's role in sequestering carbon. And we often hear about old growth trees being really important in sequestering carbon, obviously, for climate change. But what role does fungi play in this in terms of climate change? Absolutely. And this is the work that you mentioned before, the SPUN network that Toby Kears and Merlin Sheldrake set up. And what they're trying to do is track these fungal biodiversity hotspots because we're essentially the more fungi you've got, the more mycelium in the soil, the more biomass of mycelium, the more potential to trap, fung- uh, to trap carbon in the soil. So I think that whole idea of keeping forests in place and their fungi within the soil, we're actually maximising the chance of pulling that carbon down into the soil. So there's lots of people working Working on particularly within the agricultural sector, looking at ways to try and keep fungi and uh, keep carbon in the soil, and it's always focused on plants. So, I haven't looked in real detail yet at how Toby is measuring this, but she's certainly the one who's leading the way at looking and measuring how much carbon is actually trapped by fungi in soil. And oftentimes, if we were to pull out a, a teaspoon or a spadeful of soil, there'd be all kinds of organisms in there. If it's a healthy soil, and we're often aware of the invertebrates and the plants, but we think one of the largest parts of the biomass, the actual cells of organisms in that soil is made up of that amazing entanglement of fungus mycelium. So there is research underway, certainly, to look at the value of that in sequestering carbon in soils. Yeah, that's so cool, the science that's happening around fungi at the moment, isn't it? We're kind of running out of time, but there's an area that I really want to cover off on, and that is the chapter nine, Women as Keepers of Fungal Law. Earlier on in the book, you talk about how Aboriginal women were often the ones who were looking for truffles in the desert and that being one of their roles. But clearly there are many different ways that women have had a relationship to fungi across the years, across history and across cultures. And I wondered if you could talk to us about you know, why you decided to have that as a chapter, because I know it is a really important thing to you. Sure, absolutely. So when New South Publishing approached me and asked me to write the book, I was aware that in the last five or six years, we've had about a dozen new publications, narrative nonfiction books on fungi, which is really exciting. And all of those have come out of the UK and the USA. So I took these books, such as Merlin's and, and Suzanne Simard's, who you mentioned, Peter Volleben's. I looked at the tables of contents of each of those to see where are the gaps? What are the themes about fungi that haven't been covered in these other books? And one of them that seems so glaringly obvious to me was that women and the role of women in the history of mycology hasn't really been written about. And so we know across cultures that we think oftentimes it was women who were the keepers of fungal law. Knowledge was passed down from grandmothers to daughters to granddaughters. And even though it's, it's hard to be absolutely sure about that because women's histories often weren't recorded, we do know that many women were honorary workers, honorary meaning honoured but not paid, for male scientists who were looking at fungi. So the women were often doing the collecting of specimens, they were doing the written descriptions, they were doing the illustrations, they were submitting specimens, drying them, preparing them, submitting them to various fungaria, but they were seldom acknowledged for their work. And probably the most, the person that people know most about is Beatrix Potter. We know that she produced all these illustrations and amazing 
images, uh, paintings of fungi and the amazing work she did. But right here in Australia, we've got women who are honorary consultants to herbaria who have been working, again, for decades, collecting species, describing new species. And I like to highlight their work, particularly someone called Pam Catcherside, who was a teacher all her life. And then when she retired, she spent another, or still doing it, another 20-odd years collecting fungi and really unusual usual places like Kangaroo Island and in the more remote desert areas, collecting those specimens, preparing them, drying them. She's discovered over 20 new species. She's submitted 5,000 specimens to Herbaria and Fungaria, and those specimens are such vital repositories of DNA for future researchers, and yet few people know her name. And so Pam is very retiring, very shy. She doesn't like to wave the flag about herself, but I think without that work of those voluntary women, we'd be so much further the back in our understanding of mycology. So I just wanted to make a shout out to those women in the book who've contributed so much to our understanding of fungi. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And it is, that's a theme across so many different sectors and areas, it is. isn't it? Women, Absolutely. unpaid voluntary work, always unsung as well. So yeah, I'm really glad you did do that and to focus on the role of women because it's so much needed. And yeah, it's a really good point that in this particular field with all the books that have come out, women are not mentioned. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, it's great, Amy. People like yeah, the wonderful mycologist Lynn Boddy in, in, in the UK and Susan Simard, as you mentioned, and Toby Kears. We are seeing women really playing a vital part in the field of mycology today. So it's a really yeah. important and fantastic change. And you, Alison, let's not forget. <laughs> I'm, I'll keep, I'll toot your horn. Um, Thanks, Amy. Yeah, no, I really do love not just your writing and your communication about fungi, but also your photography is so special. And you do say in the book that you've kind of moved away from scientific photography of documenting the best type of a, a certain species of fungi. And instead, you've now changed your approach to how you see fungi through your photography lens. Could you tell us a little bit about how you approach photographing fungi and also just even just personally how you approach fungi in a forest? Because you do take us through that relationship that you establish with fungi on the ground of the forest floor, you know, getting dirty in the leaves and at sometimes risking your life of stampeding animals as well. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess originally, working as a scientist, most of the photography I did, whether it was fungi or, or other organisms, the photos were always very diagnostic. So they're the sorts of images you'd find in a report or a field guide that allows you to see all those relevant features so that you can identify that species. You need to show the particular details of different parts of the mushroom. And, and that's a really important thing. But I guess over the years, what I've realised is that we're starting to know a little bit about our species now. And I think what we need in conservation is for people not just to know about them, to fall in love with them. So I guess mm. I'm trying to take more inspirational than just informational shots. So I'm appealing to the heart as much as the head. So when someone looks at that image, it doesn't matter to me quite so much anymore if they can identify what that species is. But if they look at that image and they feel inspired by it, they feel fascinated by it or they want to go and find it, if it captivates their imagination and curiosity, 
then for me that's just as important as being able to put a name on the species. So I've moved a little bit that way towards trying to appeal to the heart as much as the head and and spending time on the forest floor. I mean, I guess I know a lot of people now are photographing with phones, which is so wonderful and all these other ways, but I still like to have my big tripod and big camera out there and oftentimes I'll be on the floor for an hour trying to coax that mushroom into smiling for me or try, <laughs> trying to capture it at its best. And I think that prolonged, detailed observation of watching something, and not just the mushroom, but the great menagerie of different invertebrates that will that will visit that fungus while I'm watching it, that's when I've really learned a lot about fungi, just that long-term observation up close on the forest floor and also making time-lapse video. When you come home and watch those videos, all these things happen that you don't actually observe there in the, observe there in the field. So I think in today's fast-forward world where we're rushing from one thing to the next to actually slow down sit on the forest floor that's when you really see these details and people commented on that yesterday we were out foraging uh, foraying I should say and we'd see one mushroom we'd all sit down to have a look at it and then while we're sitting there people see all these other fungi amongst the leaf litter so I think that slow slow mushrooming approach detailed observation that's when we really see the detail and, and notice how ubiquitous how widespread and how diverse they are. Yeah, no, it's um, it's so true. It is a real experience to have that close-up relationship and observational experience with fungi. You realise they're not that scary anymore. Uh, (laughs) It's not something to be afraid of. Just don't eat it if you think it's poisonous is, you know, the main thing. Because as you say, touching a fungi is not something to be scared of either. You need to engage your senses when you do something like that. Absolutely. Look, we don't really know, we don't really have any evidence that anyone's ever been poisoned from touching a fungus. You have to actually ingest a toxic fungus to be poisoned by it. That said, some fungi are really bacterial, so you should never put your hands on your face or anywhere. You should always wash your hands. But this is a a hygiene issue, not a toxicity one. So even a toxic fungus, you won't get poisoned from touching it. You've got to ingest it to be affected by it. But always be cautious. Always, you know, wash your hands afterwards. Don't touch your face or whatever. But I think so long as we keep distance from fungi, we view them from a distance, we don't touch them, we're afraid of them. We're never really going to connect with them or regard them or conserve them. No, no, it's so true. Alison, we've just scratched the surface of this book. There is so much I didn't get to ask you about, and I'm glad because it means more people will have to go out and read the whole (laughs) book (laughs) Uh, because there's so much in there about parasitic fungi and the ghost fungus and Maori uses of fungi and how mammals interact with fungi, like so many different things. It's just an utterly fascinating read and it's written in such a way that you really go on this traveling journey with you, but also it kind of sparks your imagination as to what is happening. Obviously, it's grounded in all this amazing science and personal experience as well. So thank you so much, Alison, for sharing your expertise your passion and your advocacy for fungi and for writing this absolutely fantastic book, Underground Lovers Encounters with Fungi. Um, Really, it's just been such a pleasure to chat with you. Oh, thank you so much, Amy. It's just yeah, wonderful to see how many people you've drawn to fungi as well and we're getting that, that fungal word out there. So thank you again so much for your time and your interest. Oh, my pleasure. I'll keep doing it. It's an ongoing project, isn't it, Alison? See you out there in the forest, Amy. Indeed. (laughs) And make sure you check out Alison's website because you still have some workshops and forays going around in various parts of the country. So some may have already visited your area, but there are others still to come. Absolutely. Excellent. 
You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. It is my true pleasure to welcome back onto this program someone who doesn't even really need an introduction, but I will anyway, and that is Professor David Lindenmeyer, who is a world-renowned scientist, a forest scientist. He's based at the ANU Fenner School. He's written hundreds of peer-reviewed articles about the mountain ash forests in the Central Highlands, among other related topics relating to forest ecology and conservation and biodiversity within those forests. And Really, some huge news has come through just as I was having my conversation with Alison Puglio about fungi and forests, and that is the news that we've just heard about the Andrews Labor government in Victoria announcing that they will end native forest logging in Victoria by January next year, which is such a massive deal. It's a huge deal, no doubt, for David Lindenmeyer, who's been speaking with me about this topic since our show began and has been talking about it and writing about it for even longer than that. So I welcome onto the show Professor David Lindenmeyer. And first of all, I've got to say congratulations to you and all the people in our community who've been campaigning on this issue for decades and decades. It must feel like an amazing feeling to hear this news this morning, David. Well, if it's the uh, if it's true, and all the indications are that the, the uh, this decision is right, then yes, it's a it's a very welcome decision. It's the right decision economically. It's the right decision environmentally, and in fact, it's actually the right decision socially for the state of Victoria. So, uh, I'm I'm thrilled if this is actually truly an exit. I hope it is. Mm. Because I don't think Victoria continue to afford to 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 subsidise an industry that's losing so much money. There are so many other things that you could do with that money that are are really important to do: hospitals, nursing homes, schools, all that kind of thing. And 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 so, let's hope that the outcome is is as it's been reported in the media. Let's see the detail. But if if it is then I, I uh, welcome the decision from the Victorian government to, to do the right thing. Indeed. Well, is it any wonder that there's a little bit of caution and trepidation? Because when we heard that native forest logging was going to end by 2030, it would be phased out, and that old growth trees would be protected in the meantime in certain areas. We even know that that's been a real struggle to hold the government to that promise. And, you know, a lot of people have been wondering if that announcement was even going to be followed through, given how much Labor has been concerned with the industry and keeping it going with those subsidies you talk about. The ABC, for those wondering, have been reporting that Treasurer Tim Pallas will announce today more than $200 million in a transition package for the logging and timber industry in today's budget, and that those workers are currently being briefed about the decision. So that's how we've come to this information through the ABC. And David Lindenmeyer, you have been talking about how the industry has been propped up and obviously the concerns about workers and how they will be supported, those who are already working in this area. And as you've said in the past, you know, this is something that is absolutely able to be managed by government. And the fact is that 
logging in general won't be ended in the sense that plantation logging is still an industry that some of these workers might choose to work in. Can you give us a sense of of the industry as it stands now and what the concerns have been and, and the criticisms have been from industry about ending this industry? Well, I, I think it's important to take a step back here and give people a sense of what the shape of the industry is. 90%, 90 90%, I'll say that again, 90% of everything that gets cut in a native forest in Victoria goes to the wood chip and paper pulp and box liner process, okay? So only 10% of native forest logging actually leads to sawn timber. 90% of all sawn timber in Victoria already comes from plantations. Plantations are where the, the real money is, uh, it's it's profitable, the plantation industry. It's where the, the high-value products come from. And we need to now also look at what's being exported from Australia. So 93% of all plantation-grown hardwood material is being exported. Now, Australia needs to grow up in this space. Australia needs to start processing the wood that it grows in Australia, in Australia, it's, it's ludicrous that we are exporting so much of that material. So we can grow the forest industry through the plantation sector to create more jobs for more Australians working in manufacturing. We don't need to be exporting all of that timber overseas. Now, I also think that it's really important that we, um, we focus on what, what the outcome here is in terms of regional Victoria, already a very active uh, plantation sector in parts of regional Victoria, we need to make sure that we can process that material and uh, and create more jobs around those around those industries, the plantation industry. Let's look at what the true value of our native forests is all about, and that's for water production, for carbon storage, for tourism, for biodiversity, for elite firefighting. So there are many, many opportunities in this space. Economically, what the Victorian government has done was actually really the only sensible financial outcome, uh, outcome and decision that it could make, given how much money has been lost. Big Forests has, has made losses for the vast majority of the years of its operation, and its last loss was $54.2 million. It's taken up a loan of $80 million. With its trading history and its financial history, Big Forests could never have paid that money back. Essentially, it means it's trading as an in, insolvent entity, and that, that is ridiculous, particularly now given the kinds of budget constraints and problems that places like Victoria are facing. Indeed. Well, we did hear that the Andrews government were going to cut public servants because of pressures on the budget, so this is obviously another of those. And we've not only seen Vic Forest have you know, monetary losses, we've seen them have court losses in recent times over the yellow-bellied glider there have been other cases as well that have been taken and been successful against Vic Forests and the way that they've been surveying areas to be logged and the endangered species within them. David, you've been talking about just how special the Central Highlands are that you've been studying and writing about for such a long time. And I remember our first ever conversation was about the government's commitment under Lisa Neville to establish a great forest national park. Do you think that there's a kind of shift afoot if native forest logging is truly ending, you know, by the end of January next year, 2024, do you think that there is 
perhaps more appetite to do that, to finally pick up the mantle and do things like embrace tourism in our native forests for something like the Great Forest National Park? Well, I certainly hope so. Lisa Neville made a promise to me. I have it on email from her office that there would be a Great Forest National Park. She made that promise uh, in October 2014. And here we are nearly a decade later and that promise hasn't been delivered. Uh, you know, my, my parents always said to me, if you make a promise, David, you need, to, you, you need to stick to it. And I think it's critical that we do that. And we need to make sure that the model for a Great Forest National Park is right so that we, we have respectful co-managements with First Nations people, and there are ways to do that. There are good models for doing that, like we see, for example, at Buderee National Park in, in the Jarvis Bay Territory, south of Sydney, where we've worked for over two decades. And there's a, a brilliant co-management model there between the First Nations people of the Rec Bay community and Parks Australia. We can do a similar thing in Victoria and have opportunities for First Nations people working on country to tackle issues with, with uh, Indigenous disadvantage and improve the outcomes in forests. We know, for example, that about 30% of logged forests have not regenerated properly. There's an enormous amount of work to restore and repair the damage that's been done to forests from widespread clear-felling over the last 50 to 60 years. So there's a lot of work to do still in these forests, and I think it's really important that uh, we think about those kinds of jobs, not only for First Nations people, but for people in rural and regional Australia. The plantation industry is screaming out for, for people to work in their sector. I've seen that in New South Wales, and I know that's also the case in Victoria. There are opportunities with a transition like this, and we need to make sure that that transition happens quickly, that happens smoothly, and that we create opportunities to make sure that the transition is done in a socially just way that has good economic and social outcomes as well as good environmental outcomes. Indeed. You're tuned to 3RRR and I'm speaking to Professor David Lindenmeyer and we're talking about the reports from ABC News that the Andrews government is to announce today that they will end native forest logging completely by January 2024. So that's huge, huge news. David, there are a couple of things I want to cover off on this announcement before we finish up, and that is that obviously a lot of people who've been advocating in this area, researching scientifically in this area, will want to make sure that there aren't any kind of caveats to this announcement and will want to look at the fine print. What are some of the potential things or concerns that advocates might have at the moment about the announcement to ensure that all kinds of destructive practices in Victoria's forests are ended? Because obviously native forest logging is one element to that, but there are many practices that can take place in these native forests in Victoria. People to be aware that sometimes industry restructures in, in other sectors have had really quite perverse outcomes. So uh, I, I follow things in fisheries quite a bit. And, and what sometimes happened there is that there's been money for people to exit the industry and then they, they go and a bit of a break and come back a few days later, a few weeks later, and buy a bigger boat to fish more intensively with the money that they got from their exit packages. So I don't want to see things like that happen in this case. There, there is uh, some evidence of that kind of thing that happened in Tasmania with 
the restructuring that happened in forestry down there. I think it's really important that we avoid practices that can be very detrimental to some kinds of forests. And there's been a big push from some parts of industry to do so-called post-disturbance salvage logging after windstorms, for example, in the Wombat Forest. That is very, very damaging to forests. And it also makes forests more prone to more fire. So we need to avoid these kinds of things that are actually quite destructive to forests and can set back the whole forest recovery process and in doing so actually make these forests more flammable, not less. So we need to use good science now to have people working on country around things to do with forest restoration and not doing things like widespread industrial thinning and widespread industrial salvage logging that will make these forests more fire-prone, not less. Indeed. And when you talk about forest restoration, I know we've seen reporting and monitoring by scientists and citizen scientists showing that still there's been a lot of logging happening in places like Tulangi, in places across the state. So there still has been obviously logging going on, causing a lot of these disturbances and meaning that there will be a lot of restoration work to be undertaken once that finishes. What are some of the biggest concerns you as a scientist have now in terms of what you've been monitoring around Tulangi, for example, and the mountain ash trees and the forests there? What are some of the kind of key priorities for restoration in the forests that you've been studying for so many decades? Well, I think several things that are really important. One, one is that we need to be aware that one of the legacies of past logging operations is that the forest is now much, much more flammable than it was previously. And so we're going to really need to watch out for um, ways to tackle the fire problem. And that is with good technology and trying to grow forests through to the stage where they're less likely to burn at high severity. So there's a key issue there. And that is right across the state. It's not just in the central highlands. Another issue from northeastern Victoria and southeastern New South Wales is that the, the consequences of ongoing export wood shipping and intensive logging in that part of the, the world is that the composition of the forest has changed and shifted towards tree species like silvertop ash and also coastal areas, uh, coastal blackbutt. And those tree species are not edible for animals like koalas and greater gliders. And so we need a restoration process to start to restore the natural balance of different tree species in those ecosystems. So there's a, there's a hell of a job of work in that space as well because there are literally hundreds of thousands of hectares of forest that have been created, which are essentially glider and koala desert. So there's yeah. a, a big job of work to do for many decades ahead. Uh, and and uh, you know, that means uh, a very skilled workforce working towards uh, restoring the forests in ways that they can store more carbon, that they're better for biodiversity, they produce more water for human consumption and they have major tourism opportunities. You know, it's a really exciting different trajectory to take the state's forests on and I really look forward to it. So uh, let's hope that this is a real decision that's taking us in the right directions uh, to a much better place than we are at the moment. Yeah, it certainly does change things when you look ahead to the horizon and perhaps it might get some ecology scientists and conservation scientists galvanised or students, I should say, you know, wanting to work more in this area. 
just finally, David, I know we were going to talk about the budget and the environment, and there was one particular body, Environment Information Australia, which stood out because it wasn't something I was necessarily expecting. I knew about Environment Protection Australia, which is a watchdog agency that's been introduced. But would you just mind telling us about Environment Information Australia and what the budget has essentially done regarding the environment and and your kind of brief assessment of it? This will be a data hub. This will be where people's data that, that um, is in, in important around the environment. How, how are our ecosystems tracking? How effective is our monitoring? Are our management interventions, like changing grazing practices or replanting, are they working? What are the data that tells us about how well the environment's tracking? And so we need good data. We need good monitoring to be able to sort, support making good decisions. And so the, the Data Hub is a, is a welcome initiative to try to drive us in, in the right direction in terms of doing things better on the, on the ground. So I really welcome those kinds of things. Data is really important to make, uh, to make good scientific decisions, good environmental decisions to, to take us in a better, better direction. And really that's what's happened in the Central Highlands case is that the decisions there are really driven by what the scientific evidence has, has come up with. So this is evidence-based policy and evidence-based management, and that's crucial. Yeah. Well, thank you, David, for joining us today on this very momentous occasion, which I couldn't really believe my eyes. I still can't quite. I'm sure you're the same, and you're going to be talking about this a lot today in the media. So we do appreciate your time, but if there's anything that you want people to take away from today, what do you hope that those listening and those who've advocated for these forests um, and community groups, what do you hope that they take away from this moment today? people look at this and and think about what the exciting new opportunities are for, for Victoria and for Australia. You know, you're talking about some of the world's tallest flowering plants on the doorstep of Australia's largest city. 90 minutes, 90 minutes from the, from the MCG. What an incredible set of opportunities this would be uh, to bring more people to see what an incredible place. I, um, I, I hope that people embrace these kinds of things and realise that you know, the, the, the Tony Abbott sort of mantra as, of jobs versus the environment is false. This is about jobs and the environment and new ways of thinking about how to, to, to embed protected areas in Australian psyche, Australian culture and Australian workplaces. Well, I couldn't agree more and I hope people go out to Tulangi and experience it for themselves if they haven't already. Thank you so much, David, for taking the time to chat with us and we'll catch up again soon. Thanks, Amy. My pleasure. I've just been chatting with the phenomenal David Lindenmeyer. He is a professor based at the ANU's Fenner School, and he's a conservation and forest scientist who's been working in this field for decades, publishing many peer-reviewed articles on this area. So it's been really wonderful to talk with him about this big announcement that's come through through the ABC that the Victorian government plans to end the native forest logging industry and native forest forest logging in the state by January 2024. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.